0: O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Dear God, we... Uh, We love you, Lord. Happy Father's Day, and we are grateful to be your adopted children. We are thankful that you sent a Savior who made a way for us, Lord, and just your wonderful plan, Lord, your sovereign plan, how great it is. You have blessed us so greatly. We pray that we would honor you this day in our thoughts and discussion of your Word, Lord, as we feast on it. I pray that you would bless this teaching today in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And creation. We've come at it from multiple angles. In the process, we discovered we discovered that it supports at least a couple of major biblical themes. The first theme connected to the Psalm is that God made his existence evident to all. Everyone is held accountable to recognize that the world was created by God. The major companion text. We saw for that was Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. The second theme to emerge from Psalm 8 is that God favors and reveals himself to children and to those with childlike faith, that is, humble, unpretentious faith. In other words, God chooses the foolish and the weak things of the world to confound or to shame the wise and the proud. The major companion text for that concept is in one Corinthians chapter 1 verses 20 through 31. However, these two themes are primarily doctrinal type type statements and are not specifically prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the term messianic implies, this psalm, Psalm 8, has its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. It's important for us to see that. Today we're looking for Jesus in this Psalm. And what we find with Jesus fulfilling Psalm 8 is that God's grace makes us through no merit of our own major beneficiaries in the process. And the major companion text we'll be looking to is Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5-9. through Today we'll see Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. We'll see that man's original dominion which was given as part of God's purpose for humanity, will be greatly expanded when Jesus returns. And we'll look at what it means to be co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ. So this slide might look a little familiar to you. It's because I've already used it. I used it in the second lesson of Psalm 8 when we were taking that slow, more observant walk through the psalm. You might remember... That we talked about some specific words, some phrases, and some ideas. And the idea was to see where the psalmist was leading. I wrote down uh, six of them. Those ideas included that the, the changeable nature of the word everything, its meaning is determined by its context. In Psalm 8, everything was defined as it appears right here on the slide as one be, all that relates to the subject. Next we saw that a major purpose that God has for humanity is to give mankind dominion over his works. Psalm 8 specifically delineated what Adam was given dominion over, land, air, and sea animals. As well, we looked at Genesis 128. It included that man was to replenish and subdue the earth. You know, but even when all this is taken together, mankind's dominion at the first was a limited dominion. Then we discussed what Adam was not given dominion over. And namely, we looked at angels and men. And I would add another very important observation. Adam was not given dominion over death. In fact, since Adam and Eve sinned, death has maintained it's power over man. It has reigned over man. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In our discussions we looked at man being made a little lower than the heavenly beings, specifically angels from the word angelos in Greek, Elohim in the Hebrew. And we determined that little more likely meant temporally or temporary rather than a degree of lower. We talked about a number of different ways in which man might be made lower than the angels. We talked about size, abilities, greatness, location, I don't know if we came to a consensus, but the topic of substance, that is flesh, was mentioned. And then finally, and of great importance, we saw that God views mankind as his crowning creation and that we were made in his image. At that time, we also looked at the phrase, son of man, the son of man, and we determined that there's application to both Adam and Jesus Christ. So then, let's revisit this phrase, Son of Man. It basically means a human being. But with Jesus, it points to the necessity for his identification with man. Why so? Why does Jesus need to identify with man? Only a man can save us from our sins. Only a man can save us from our sins. There has to be a relationship there, a very great relationship of the same kind. So to help us understand, it may be good to consider the concept of the kinsman redeemer. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it's also called the goel. It's first mentioned in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 25. There it says, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. The book of Ruth really gives us a more complete picture of this principle and it makes it easier to see how the Lord Jesus Christ has taken this role for us. In the book of Ruth, Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer when he fulfills the necessary requirements. Do any of you remember the requirements for a kinsman redeemer? I think we've talked about one already relationship, that is eligibility. He has to be eligible by family re- relationship. Can you think of others? Willingness. Say it. Willingness. Willingness, absolutely. Willingness, because there was another, uh, in, in Ruth, there's another uh, person who is a closer relative even than Boaz, but he uh, was not willing to take up uh, that position, to, to uh, put himself in that Uh, principle under that principle and he was not under obligation to do so he chose boaz chose of his own will he had the grace then he had the grace to do so how about capability capable he had to be a man a person of means of capital of finance he had to be able to make the purchase he had to be totally able to pay boaz was able to pay he was a wealthy landowner and then, fourthly, is the ability to pay it all up front in one time, all up front. He could, choo- he, could cl- he had to close the deal as payment in full in one single transaction. So those are the requirements. Hey, Jack. Yes. So that willingness, the, there's a component of that, the willingness involves sacrifice. That it's, it's not a gain. You know, the chances of you gaining from it are almost nonexistent. You're losing something in the transaction. It's for the benefit of the other person. Absolutely. That's a very important point. The willingness is a a sacrificial position to take in the first place. Now, when we look at Boaz, you made me think, I don't know that he saw he was giving up as much as he, because of one reason he was in love with Ruth. And out of love, I think the willingness followed. That's very good points. Very good point. I think, too, the, you know, the kinsman redeemer was obligated to raise up offspring to the deceased relative. That's it. With, with the idea that when that child came of age, that child would take over the property and the kinsman redeemer would lose it. Okay. So that you know, it would restore the property to that family line and the line in Israel should not perish. Yeah. Great information. Yeah. To raise up children and then the, uh, the inheritance wasn't lost in the original family. Very good. Well, that's great. So Ruth and actually Naomi's as well, their position truly appeared hopeless as, as widows. They were widows without sons. That's not a good place to be in those times. They had no cover. That means they had no means to provide for themselves. But Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, as their goel, he was a type of savior and he lifted them from their predicament. Now regarding our hopeless condition because of sin and our need for a Savior, as the second person of the Godhead, but before his incarnation, Jesus met all of the requirements to be our kinsman redeemer except for one, and that was eligibility. He wasn't eligible. He was not of the same family as us. He was not of the same substance. We were not yet related by flesh and blood. But by God's sovereign will and his plan, this, is, this changed. In his incarnation, that mysterious, miraculous, Holy Spirit conception, Jesus was able to dwell among us in human flesh, 100% human flesh, 100% sinless human flesh. And what an amazing grace-filled plan that is. You know, Daniel the prophet, he was given a prophetic vision of what this meant when he saw Jesus Christ presented to the Father at his, his coronation. This is written in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So students of the Old Testament understood the phrase son of man to be a messianic title. So did Jesus, and he claimed it. Jesus used this title 78 times of himself in the Gospels. I believe Jesus was never ashamed to identify himself with us. Now sometimes Christendom, meaning the Christian world, can give a distorted view of the Incarnation, implying that Jesus becoming a man is somehow about the subtraction of things from him. But that's not accurate. Remember, Jesus never stopped being God. Yes, for the purpose of accomplishing his work, he voluntarily laid aside some of his privileges and prerogatives as deity, and for the most part, his glory was veiled. That is, he chose not to exercise some of his godly privileges, but he did not lose them, and he did not give them away. In fact, the triune God of the Bible has existed and reigned from all eternity. But the second person of the Trinity the Son took on human flesh at a particular point in time. God the the Son added a sinless human nature to His eternally existent divine nature. The result was the incarnation, that is, God the Son became a man. And just as Jesus never ceased to be God, it's equally true that after becoming incarnate, the Son has never ceased to be a human, to be human. Consider 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The bottom line is that by taking on human flesh and living a sinless life, Jesus is eligible and qualified to stand in as our substitute. By his grace he is willing, and by the infinite value, in his once-for-all sacrificial death, our sin debt is paid He meets all four requirements of the kinsman-redeemer, and we receive the benefit. Okay, next, a little lower than the angels. When we look at the prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 8, which is found in Hebrews chapter 2 and other scriptures, it becomes pretty clear what this phrase means. First off, Hebrews 2, verses 7 and 9 they remove any or mystery regarding the adverb little. There we read that it means a little while, a little while, in both verses. It means temporary. For Christ, it was the time from his birth until his death on the cross. For a born-again believer, it lasts from birth until resurrection or transformation if we're living at the time of the rapture. So now let's try to understand what made lower than the angels refers to. And as I sometimes do, I'd like to take the long way around to get to the answer. If, if you were to ask uh, reasons why God created the universe and all of its creatures, the short answer is for his glory and for his pleasure. The King James Version of Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Also on this subject, Proverbs 16.4 simply says, The Lord has made all for himself. How true. <laughs> However, the fact is that God is a perfect being. And therefore, he lacks nothing. He needs nothing to fulfill him. He's totally complete. He has no needs and he is without flaws. And honestly, I admit that whatever God's reasons were for creating the universe and man, I really don't have an answer. I'm not sure that it's even knowable. But reasonably, it should have something to do with his character and who he is. Surely it flows from his love. And we know that in God's economy, love is inseparably connected to obedience. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if so, true love as a non-programmed response from his creatures, would require the ability to choose, to choose between loving and not loving, between obedience and disobedience. The fact is, God foreknew that in his original creation, his crowning creature, the one he chose to bear his own image, wasn't ready for eternity. He knew the tremendous struggle with sin and the story that lay ahead. He could not give mankind the substance, a body, that would be fit for an eternity with God, not at the beginning. So he made man lower than the angels in his substance, in his body, in flesh. At the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve were given bodies made of sinless flesh, but the bodies given to Adam and Eve were always, always subject to death. Although they would not have died if they had not sinned, their bodies were still subject to death. The angels, who are also created beings, had been made with bodies with substance fit for eternity, but man wasn't ready. Therefore, God made man lower than the angels in his body. But from the beginning, this was always meant to be a temporary state. It was meant to be for a little while. You know there's an interesting section in the Gospel of Luke and it kind of clues us in to the fact that being made lower than angels refers to our bodies, our flesh. In Luke chapter 20 verses 27 through 40 Jesus answered a question about a ridiculous scenario put forth by the hypocritical Sadducees. His answer shed light on the topic of a believers body in the resurrection. The Sadducees had asked about a hypothetical woman married seven times and they wanted to know whose wife she would be in the resurrection you know the one that they didn't even believe in. here's Jesus response in Luke chapter 20 verses 34 through 36 and Jesus said to them the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead that would be believers Neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Notice that resurrected believers are no longer lower but equal to, or as in some versions say, the same as angels. Yes? I'm sorry? That's right that believers will judge. So there's a shift we're no, and no longer lower in the resurrection. I think we're, we're seeing that. Also we're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be but we know that when He, Jesus, appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And because being made lower than the angels is also applied to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, we understand that the condition is temporary. And there it referred to his pre-resurrection human flesh. Okay. Now let's talk about our future glorified, no longer lower than angels resurrection bodies. Paul writes in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. These verses are referring to Jesus coming to rapture the church. If we are alive, he will transform our bodies. If we've died, he will resurrect our bodies. Either way, we will receive our glorified resurrection bodies. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35-49 30, uh, through 49 contain probably the most complete treatise regarding our future glorified bodies that we will receive from Jesus. Notice the adjectives associated with our current bodies of flesh. Earthly, perishable meaning we die, dishonor, associated with sin and decay, weakness, natural. And also notice the descriptors of our resurrection bodies, heavenly, imperishable, when death is defeated, glory, power, spiritual. Okay, let me read the slide. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. As was the first man of dust, so also are those who have the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who have heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, I would also add that 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57, tell us, that Christ has won, won for us victory over death and sin. Listen, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What about other aspects of our glorified, resurrected bodies? Though we don't have a lot of details, we can say that as imperishable bodies, they will no longer suffer from sickness and death, nor will they be subject to heat or cold or hunger and thirst. Our new bodies will be honorable in that they will not be shamed or shameful because of sin. Our earthly bodies are weak in many ways. Not only are we subject to the natural laws of gravity and time and space, but we're also weakened by sin and its temptations. Our glorified bodies will be empowered by the Holy Spirit who owns us, and weakness will be no no more. Just as our earthly bodies are perfectly suited to life on earth, our resurrected bodies will be suited for life in eternity. We will have form, and we will feel solid to touch we will likely be able to enjoy food, but thankfully we will not be driven to it by necessity or fleshly desire like I am. In short, the bodies we inherit will be exactly, exactly what God originally intended rather than what we are now in. That's a pretty good hope. Now we're going to look at this very important passage from Hebrews. This represents really the pinnacle of of prophetic fulfillment regarding Psalm 8. As a whole, the book of Hebrews could be summarized simply in three words. Jesus is better, he's greater, he's superior. We should keep that theme in front of us in every chapter as we go through Hebrews. In chapter one, we're told that Jesus is better than the prophets and that he's better than the angels. We're told that Jesus is God, chapter one. In chapter two, the point is made that Jesus is man, let me read this slide now. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, and I've put the section out of Psalm 8 that's quoted in Hebrews here. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, excuse me, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." You know, here I like the, uh, the ESV and I think the NIV translations as well. I particularly chose th- th- this translation because it uses earlier manuscripts. If you're in the nasb you may not have read the same thing that I just read. Um, but it helps t- uh, to emphasize a point being made. The section quotes from Psalm 8, verses, verses 4 through 6. But do you see what's missing? I've, I've outlined it in yellow. You made him ruler over the works of your hands is not does not transfer from the Old Testament to the New Testament when it's brought forward. Is that important? Well, remember that in context in Psalm 8, the works were synonymous with everything, which were synonymous with land, air, and sea animals. Right? To me, this is indication of something interesting happening. Perhaps a transition is occurring. The word everything... Now, in Hebrews, has just expanded, and it truly means all that there is. This is affirmed by the next words. He left nothing out of his control. And we should remember that. This is speaking of man's dominion. Man's dominion. Next, the phrase in verse 5, about subjection of the world to come, specifically means the inhabited world. This isn't heaven. This isn't eternity. This is the messianic kingdom that Israel expected in the Old Testament, which we understand to be the millennial kingdom from the New Testament. That is when Christ returns to the earth after the tribulation. Most commentaries explain that these verses are about the restoration of what Adam lost, that Jesus as the Son of Man restores to us what Adam lost at the fall. But the definition of restoration is the action of returning something to its former or original condition. And that word is not completely accurate here. What we're reading is not about Jesus merely restoring everything back to the original creation. Remember the theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better. We're being told that God plans a much greater dominion for his children. And I love what verse 9 says, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. That means every individual person, not just the elect This gives us comfort and assurance that Jesus suffered and died in a single act at the cross for all people. Jesus paid the debt for every sin committed, but it is the individual's responsibility to receive the benefit of His free gift by faith. Any comments? Okay, now for some more good stuff. I'd venture to say, that the greatest and most amazing difference between Adam and God's original creation before he sinned and a saved believer who has trusted Christ is found in the fact that God the Father has made us his heirs and co-heirs with his son. This means that believers have been given the privilege of sharing in Christ's inheritance. As adopted sons of God, Christians are treated as firstborn heirs. Here's what is stated in Romans eight verses sixteen and seventeen the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him you know there are many verses many verses that confirm our co-inheritance with Jesus Peter tells us that this allotment to us is sure and has even been reserved ahead of time before our resurrection. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 spells out exactly what Christ's and by extension our inheritance includes. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. You know, obviously the possession of all things, means Christ and we have a dominion and the right to rule over them. Listen to Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. And the Lamb has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 26. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Clearly, in the resurrection, humanity will finally be what God intended from the start. We will be above, even above, and rule over angels, as Porter said. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3 Or Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? And so this all leads to the third and final biblical theme of Psalm 8 that I found. As a believer, you gain more in Jesus than you lost in Adam. When we trust in Jesus as our Savior fully relying on His finished work on the cross, by the amazing grace of God, we are forgiven and are adopted as His sons and daughters. This is truly too awesome to comprehend. We're not merely restored to original conditions. We're lifted up to being beloved in the brethren, children of the King. God's promises, His Word, and specifically Psalm 8 are amazing. One final point. When we began the study of Psalm 8, it was noted that it begins and ends in praise. Many have found that this feature parallels God's original creation and the return of the Lord Jesus to receive His kingdom. In closing, and with that in mind, I'd like to read Psalm 96, which looks to the Lord's return. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in His faithfulness. Jay, will you close us in prayer, please?